text for this morning's sermon, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the first 15 verses. This is the Word of God. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there was nothing better for them to, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sermon title in the liturgy sheet is Life is Beautiful, and that was the title of a movie that came out about 25 years ago. It was a comedy, and it shows the reality of the human condition. It's a very thoughtful comedy. There's a lot of joy in the movie, there's marriage and love and family, children, music, laughter, and there's a lot of pain. There's violence, there's cruelty and death. In fact, a significant portion of this movie is set in a German concentration camp. And the movie deals with a Jewish father who, to protect his little boy's innocence as they're incarcerated in this camp, to protect his little boy, he, he, he pretends that it's all a game. And surprisingly, in the movie, it works. The game works, for, at least for the son. But as an answer to human suffering, it doesn't work. It wasn't funny. 
It wasn't a game to the millions who were massacred in the gas chambers. It wasn't funny. It wasn't a game to those who had their loved ones torn from them by cruel violence and injustice. Now, we're already on the third Sunday of 2023, but we're still very much at the beginning of the year. And as we've begun this new year, in many ways it's exactly the same, it's much the same as last year. It is a world of great joys and wonderful experiences, but also deep sorrows and painful afflictions. How do we navigate life in a world like this? Well, the answer of the preacher is this. Under the sun, there is no answer. There is no meaning. There is no significance to human joy or suffering. Everything is meaningless. Vanity. You see there in chapter 1, verse 2, he uses the word vanity five times in that little verse. And that word vanity means a breath, a mist, a vapor. Under the sun, that's what life is. What is the use of anything? What is the use of toiling away, slogging through life? It's the same old, same old. You go to bed, you get up, you go to work, you come home, you wash the dishes, they get dirty again. And you got to wash them again. You wash the clothes, same thing. You clean the house, and soon it's a mess again. You solve one problem at work, two others pop up to take its place. What's the use of it all? Life under the sun doesn't make sense and often doesn't seem fair. What do we get out of it? And so as the preacher casts around for meaning and significance to human life under the sun, he ends up with those words that we read in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. He asks this question, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. But then he goes on to verses 24 and 25. Because there's a qualifier. Beneath the sun, under the sun... All is vanity. Apart from God, there is no meaning and significance, no knowledge, no wisdom, no joy. But with God, there is. That's why he says what he says in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment. So under the sun, life is striving after wind. Life is a series of random events in a cruel and uncaring universe. There are some joys, there are many sorrows. There's no rhyme, no reason, no meaning. 
apart from God, under the Son. But then come the words of the gospel in our text, chapter 3, verse 1 and following. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, in a way, under the sun and under heaven are exactly the same thing. It's the world in which we live. The, the world in which we live, the life which we live is under the sun, it's under heaven. So there's a lot of overlap. And yet, those two phrases look at life from very different angles. When the preacher speaks of life under heaven, he speaks of life under the sovereignty of God. And under the sovereign rule of God, there is order, meaning, purpose, significance, and ultimate eternal beauty to life. And so if you have your Bible open, it will help you to understand the sermon to follow as I go through the, the words of the text. I'm starting in verse 1. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. The Greek language and the, the Hebrew also reflects this as well, have different words for different types of time. I'll give you the Greek words. The, the Greek language has the word chronos, and chronos, which we use in our word chronological, speaks of duration, the quantity of time, beginning and end and in between, a calendar, a clock. And then there's the other word, kairos, and kairos time is the quality of time. It is a proper time, an appropriate time, a time of opportunity. And so the preacher uses Hebrew equivalents to those words. He, he begins with, for everything, there is a, a chronos. There is a, there is a season. There is a, an established length and duration of time. And then he goes on at a time, a kairos for every matter under heaven. And all the other words for time in our text are that kairos time, the time of quality, opportunity, that appropriate time, a fitting time. Now, when you look at the first eight verses of our chapter three, we have to understand that he's not speaking about the rhythm of life. He did that in chapter one, that the sun comes up, the sun goes down, the wind goes here, it goes there, the streams flow to the sea, and then they evaporate, and then they go back and they do it again. He's not talking about the rhythm of life, nor is he talking about seasons and times for us to do things. He's not saying, well, you know, sometimes we say, well, now it's time to do this. It's, it's not focused on our choices and our agency, and you can see that by the very first one that he uses. He says there's a time to be born. Now, we don't choose when to be born, and a time to die, we ought not choose when it is time to die. These are not seasons for us. These are not times for us to do, to choose things, but these are times ordained by God. And the list that he goes through in the first eight verses of our chapter encompass all of our life from, from birth to death. They encompass all of human endeavor Planting, plucking up, breaking down, building up, casting away stones, gathering together, 
Seeking, losing, keeping, throwing away. They encompass all of human emotion, weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing. They encompass every aspect of human relationship, killing and healing, embracing, refraining from embracing, keeping silence, speaking, loving, hating, war, and peace. And so this is a comprehensive description of every aspect of human life and experience. Now, under the sun, what do they mean? You slug away, trying to get through your day, through your week, through your month, through the, through the year, through your life, and random things keep coming at us. There are joys and sorrows in no particular discernible order. And sometimes it feels like a roller coaster, an insane roller coaster designed by a madman. And the, the ride is terrifying. And even as you hear the click, 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 as you rise to experience new heights of joy, you dread the inevitable plunge into affliction and sorrow which must follow. That's life under the sun. But under heaven, all is ordained. Under heaven, there is an appropriate time, an ordained time, a decreed time for everything. That's the gospel, the good news the preacher sets before us in the first eight verses. And having done that, he asks the question of chapter 2, verse 22, again. He asks it again. What's the use of it all? What gain has the worker from his toil? What is the use of getting out of bed in the morning? What is the use of slogging through another day? And the answer, in the light of heaven, is now different. God has given us business to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And, and that word beautiful has the meaning of good and proper and fitting. He's made everything just right in its time, in its kairos, in its appropriate time. God has eternal purpose in the things that He ordains for our life. He has a purpose of eternal goodness and glory and beauty. To say what our text is saying in New Testament terms, all things work together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. All things. The good, the bad, and the ugly, all things. He has made everything good, proper, fitting in its time. And so the Christian, the believer, and only the believer can say, life is beautiful, even when it hurts.
Now, we know that, but we don't know that. And so the preacher continues, he has put eternity into man's heart. We know the universe has a purpose. We know his eternal power and divine nature displayed in creation. We know the testimony of God's law written on every human heart, embedded in every human conscience. Every human being, believer and non-believer alike, every human being knows that there is a difference between good and evil. And every human being is built with an impulse to worship. Every human shares in a sense of loss, a sense of longing for a better world, a home, we have never known. The longing to find the place where all beauty comes from. And that's why followers of the false religion of evolutionism mourn the death of their loved ones. If they were consistent with their faith, they would say, well, that's normal. That's the way things are supposed to go. They wouldn't raise an eyebrow. But they do. They feel the pain. They feel that it's not right. They feel that death is an intruder, an enemy. They feel the disconnect between life and death, between meaning and insignificance. And it bothers them because their religion has no answer for it. But it bothers us too, doesn't it? It bothers us too. We know eternity, not vaguely, but personally. We know the eternal Father, Son, and Spirit. He dwells in our hearts. And nevertheless, even we as children of God cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We know there is ultimate meaning, but we can't always see it. We can't always understand it, especially when life hurts. And so we feel this tension. Now children, if a knife stabs into your flesh and cuts you wide open, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends. If it's the knife of an assassin, it's a bad thing. But if it's the knife of a surgeon, it's a good thing. Because the surgeon cuts deeply into our bodies for life. The cut is good. It is proper. It is fitting. And each slice is right and perfectly calculated for our life, for our good, for our welfare. We've got to know that. We've got to trust that even if we don't understand everything the surgeon's doing. With God, we know 
that He is operating on our lives, but often we have no idea what He is doing and why He is doing it when He is doing it. And sometimes God's providences can seem senseless and random and even cruel. But then we have to go back to the gospel. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And we look at life under the sun and it is random and meaningless, short, brutish, painful, and cruel. But under the heaven of God's fatherly providence, everything comes from the hand of the Father. And when we understand that, and when we believe that, when we embrace that, when we cling to that, it drives us to worship. And that's what it does to the preacher. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. This drives the preacher to worship the sovereignty of God, that life is not a series of random events, but life is ordered perfectly and deliberately to bring us to eternal glory. The story of your life is written in God's decrees from before the foundation of the world. What is happening now to you has already been determined in God's eternal, perfectly wise, perfectly good counsel. That which will be has also been determined. And then he adds verse 15, which is a little tough to, to understand he adds at the end of verse 15, God seeks what has been driven away. And there are different ways to understand those last words, but I would suggest that one possibility is that it's referring to the lost opportunities, the, the, the things that have slipped away, slipped through our fingers, the, the things we messed up, yes, even the things we neglected to get to, that we bitterly regret, those idle words we let slip, well, the preacher is saying that none of that is insignificant. None of that is outside of God's ordained plans. Even the tiniest detail of our lives is imbued with eternal meaning. And God will do it. God gives it that meaning. God has done it, says the preacher, so that people fear before him. God has done it. God is sovereign. God is good. And in God, Life is beautiful. This is the key to human flourishing. This is the key to living life to the fullest when all the joys and all the sorrows drive us to worship our sovereign God, our loving Father. And you can fill in all kinds of applications in your life. Lord, I, I don't have a job or I'm facing financial problems in my company this also comes from your fatherly hand. This also is ordained to bring me to glory. Thank you for the opportunity to learn that man shall not live by bread alone. My body isn't working properly, God. Thank you 
for the opportunity to learn that when I am weak, then I am strong. That though my heart and flesh should fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And, and we can multiply the applications. The point is this, as we look at all the details of our life, that God is at work. And when we understand that, that's enough. Then we can do what verse 12 tells us to do. I will be joyful and I will do good as long as I live. I will eat and drink and take pleasure in all my toil. This is the gift of God. Now Paul speaks to the Ephesians. I think it's in chapter 5. He speaks about redeeming the time. And then he goes on in the following verses in chapter 5 and then going on to chapter 6 to tell them what that looks like. What does redeeming the time look like? Well, first of all, it looks like worship. Worshiping. Worshiping God in the Word and through the Word and for the Word. And then he goes on to show that, that this life of worship, of redeeming the time, is worshiping God in family and in the simple, faithful obedience of daily work. That's, that's the life of the believer, just simply living faithfully in our human relationships, in our family relationships, and in our daily task. That's how the kingdom and the power and the glory are manifested in our lives. Psalm 34 says it, and we had it up before the sermon on the screen here, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will bless the Lord at all times, at all times, not sometimes, not most of the time, at all times. This is the commitment of the believer. This is what the Lord Jesus sets before us as we're still very much at the beginning of a new year. I will bless the Lord at all times. Do that. That's the imperative of Scripture. That's the imperative of the gospel. That's the thing that you must do, that you can do in the power of the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't just tell us. He has shown us. He's done it himself. He entered into our humanity. He knows what it is to live life under God's providence, that it is good, that it is beautiful. Jesus accepted the kairos moment ordained by God for his birth. What does the scripture say? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Jesus accepted the kairos moment appointed by God for his death. He always speaks about his hour. My hour has not yet come. And finally, knowing that his hour had come. Jesus knew the time for mourning as he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Jesus knew the time for rejoicing as he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit when the disciples returned from their first mission trip. He knew the time for speaking as he taught the multitudes. He knew the time for silence as like a sheep that was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What does the scripture say? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Who are those ungodly? It's us who he died for. This is the life Jesus led. My times are in your hand. Sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, this is too much. Take this cup away from me. And at the same time, not my will, but your will be done. Even in the darkness of the cross, having lost all sense of the presence of the love of the Father, he still worshipped. In his deepest pain, he worshipped my God. My God, he said. Why have you forsaken me? Now we know why. We know the answer to that question. Why God forsook his only beloved son? Because God loves you. That's why he did it. And we know the whole story. We know all the ups and downs of the life of Jesus. We know the glory and the beauty of his suffering, that he drank the cup of God's wrath down to the last drop, that he destroyed the power of sin and death, that he triumphed over the powers of darkness, and that he gained the right to bring about heaven on earth. That he gained the right to say on that day which is coming, behold, I make all things new. That he gained the right to do what the preacher says he has never seen. I've never seen anything new under the sun, he says. It's always the same thing. Jesus came, suffered and died, rose again to gain the right to change that. To bring about a new world. A world which has no suffering, no sorrow, but only glorious meaning. Do you know this Jesus? You might be watching online, you might be visiting with us, you might be a member of the church for a long time. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know the power of his death and his resurrection? You need to understand that outside of Jesus Christ, life under the sun is meaningless and terrifying. And God is calling you today, if you do not have faith in your heart, if you are not united with Christ by true faith, God is calling you today. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Life is beautiful when you know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Child of God, you love the Lord Jesus. You know him. You're united to him by faith. Christ gives meaning to every moment of your life. Christ makes your life beautiful. The sorrows and the hardships and the cruelly pain, painful afflictions, the splatters of hell. And Jesus says, do you, do you taste that? Do you feel that? How bitter it is, how horrifying it is. That's a little splatter of what I suffered for you.
This is what I have saved you from. And so our pain drives us to worship. And the joys, the happiness, the the delights are tastes of heaven. And Jesus says, you think it's so wonderful to have a, a loving relationship and to meet someone and to, and to marry and to enjoy friendship and to hold a sweet little newborn baby in your arms and all the joys that you can get in life. Do you think that's good? It is good, but it is nothing compared to the joy and the glory which I have prepared for you. And so the joys drive us to worship because we're feeling, we're experiencing the beginnings of eternal joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the joy in which we live life in the light of eternity. And in that joy, we do good. In that joy, we wait for the Lord when life hurts. In that joy, we eat and drink to the glory of God. In that joy, we take pleasure in every moment of our life and work, receiving it as a gift from God. And in that joy, we understand the times like the sons of Issachar. Because we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus will come again at just the right time appointed by the Father. And then, when heaven and earth come together, when time and eternity coalesce, we will finally see and understand what God has been doing all the time in our life. We will see the pixels of the movie of our life, some of them bright, some of them dark. We will see them projected onto the screen of eternity as a picture of perfect glory. And as we gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as we worship Him in the beauty of holiness, we will understand more fully that Christ is where we begin, that Christ is where we end, that Christ is the meaning, the purpose, the Lord of every moment of our existence, that Christ is our life, and that He is altogether lovely, that our life is beautiful, world without end. Amen.